0: Well good morning church. Wow that was pitiful. We've already been in worship for 40 minutes and that's all I get. Good morning church. (laughs) That's what I like to hear. My name is Amanda, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the second week of a study called Building for the Future, where we're taking a deeper look at the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you joined us last week, you would have heard Pastor Dwight kick off the sermon series by telling us a little bit about the history of Nehemiah this um, man, Nehemiah, had ancestors who came from the city of Jerusalem and Jerusalem had at one time been a place that had really big beautiful walls and gates that would open up and close for protection and invite people in for community and for some reason um, They were attacked by the community of Babylon, and they burned the gates down, and they destroyed a lot of the walls. But Nehemiah wasn't in that community at that time. He was actually serving um, in another place far away, and he got word that his ancestors, the home of his ancestors, had been destroyed by Babylon. Now, our scripture lesson this morning puts us at the beginning of Nehemiah's journey in Jerusalem. Up until this point, Nehemiah has been um, serving as a cupbearer of King his, and he's been giving him his wine. And he's heard of the plight of his people Jerusalem, and he comes to bring the cup to the king. And he's been weeping and mourning and fasting for his people, his ancestors. And the king notices. Nehemiah has this grief written all over his face, and the king says, what's wrong? And he tells him. My people, the community has been destroyed and I don't know what to do. And the king asks him what he needs and gives Nehemiah permission to go to the people of Jerusalem and to help rebuild the walls to restore that dignity and protection to the people of Jerusalem. He uh, begins to create a plan, but before he does that, we read in scripture today that he has to do some assessing of things. So our scripture this lesson this morning comes from Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 11 through 16. Let's hear this word. Nehemiah says, "So I came to Jerusalem and was there for 3 days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one my, what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem." The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate past the dragon's spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by way of the valley by night and inspected the wall then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were to do the work. We are thankful for this word of God. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the powerful witness and example of Nehemiah, a man who went into a community that he became connected to, assessed the damage that had been done, and began to build a future filled with hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and in spite of me this morning, that you would open up all of our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you have heard me say that when I was in college, my favorite part of being a college student was going to the Wesley Foundation, the campus ministry at East Tennessee State University. It was there where I made some of my very best friends. It was there where I learned and answered my call to ministry. And it was also there that I learned what it meant to serve God by serving others. I was introduced to mission work through my student ministry and on average I was doing about three different service trips a year um, one international and then one local and one domestic by the fourth year um, I was getting ready to graduate I went to a place that I had gone to every year every year in May as soon as school let out we would make a trip down to Mount Pleasant South Carolina just outside of Charleston And there we would serve, we would work with the United Methodist Relief Center. I remember that first year, my eyes were opened to the poverty that existed just beyond the beach houses and the big plantation homes. There were generation after generation living in homes that had been torn apart by storms and weathered by that hot South Carolina heat. So in my fourth year, um, I realized that we were going to be going back to Mount Pleasant, and I remembered on every trip I'd ever been on, we'd done roofing. If you know anything about living near the water or the ocean, you know that there's always roofing to be done. And so we pulled up at the house that fourth year, and it was a brick ranch, and you could tell right away that their roof was really, really, really old and had been torn all to pieces by a recent storm, a hurricane that had come through. As we got out of the van and started to unload our supplies, I talked to the leader of the team who I'd known for four years now and I started asking him some questions because I had kind of become an amateur expert roofer (laughs) in four years. So I started asking him, so do you think we're going to have to replace all the drip edge or what about the soffits and do you foresee that there's going to be some damage underneath the roof that we're going to have to repair? How long do you think this is going to take? Are we going to use three-tab shingles? Are we going to use rolled roofing? I knew my stuff. So I started asking him these things, and I think he realized that I was interested in that. And so he said, come on, I need you to help me. While they're taking off the old roof, you can help me assess the damage on the ground. And so we walked around the house and we looked and we saw, you know, the windows that were starting to age and some of the cracks that were there. And then we looked up and we saw the roof line and we saw the damage that was there. We took some measurements and I was his scribe and I wrote down all the things that we would need. We need three tab shingles. This is how many bundles we're going to need. We're going to need chalk lines so that the shingles will be straight when we put them on the roof. We need tar paper but we also need button cap nails to put on the tar paper. This is how much plywood we're going to need to repair things. While the group was tearing off the old damaged roof, it was important to have some people assessing the damage so that when the time came, we could build and rebuild and repair that roof for the future. Now, I know that some of you know about assessing. Um, This past year, we have had to assess a lot of things, but particularly around the Easter tornado. Um, If you're an insurance adjuster, you did a lot of assessing, (laughs) amen? In March, April, and May of last year, whenever we were recovering from the tornado. Now I'm married to Justin Steinman, he works in the mayor's office, and he was tasked with helping to organize around FEMA and TEMA as they came in to give us some relief. And so I got a bird's eye view of this assessment that was happening. While our teams at OUMC were on the ground clearing out brush and removing debris from people's yards, I saw them, FEMA and TEMA, begin to assess, how are we going to make sure that we have a place for all of the things that are coming that are destroyed? Where, how are we going to dispose of all of the trees and the, the brush and all of the trash? How are we going to rebuild roads? How are we going to repair neighborhoods? How are we going to repair schools and churches? And they made an assessment and began to follow through with that. And that work is still continuing in our community today. That assessment was imperative for being able to build for the future. Well, in our scripture lesson for today, we get a bird's eye view of Nehemiah's assessment. Now, I have to say, when I first read this scripture and I thought, okay, I get to preach on basically just I'm going to walk around Jerusalem with Nehemiah, and that's, that's what you give me, Right? <laughs> But it's more than just walking around the perimeter of a community. There are several things I want you to know that I picked up on with Nehemiah. The first is that when he arrived on the scene, he took a minute. He didn't come in throwing his weight around saying, I'm going to rebuild this. He took a minute. It says in the scripture he waited three days. And it doesn't say what he did in those three days, but I was thinking about it, and I'm sure that he was tired after his journey, and so he was resting he was also probably receiving hospitality from a host. He was receiving food and, and drink from them. I'm sure that Nehemiah's relatives, long-lost relatives, started coming to tell him stories about his family, reminiscing about the faith of his ancestors. Maybe even some people who had experienced firsthand some of the issues that the town was facing came and just shared with him. He spent that first, those first few days really becoming a part of the community and assessing the emotional and relational needs of the people. And then we see, we see that the next thing that he does is he is discreet in how he does his assessment He doesn't come in there and walk around with a clipboard in the daylight and take notes and everything. He actually goes out at night. He takes just a few people with him, and he begins to walk the perimeter of the city. And I think he does that because he knows that these people maybe haven't noticed the destruction for a while. Maybe they've become a little bit blind to it. He doesn't want to alienate them or make them feel that they should have done more sooner. And so he goes around and he begins to assess the damage. And I imagine, just like I was the helper for that team leader, that his men were there and they were taking note of the things that Jeremiah was noticing. Over here by the dung gate, that wall has been compromised. We need to make sure that we reinforce that over here by this gate. It's been completely destroyed and burned. There's nothing left for us to be able to salvage here. All those things that Nehemiah was doing, he had to take an assessment of what needed to be done. He needed to have all the information that he could before he shared a plan with his people for building for the future and the last thing that he had to do which we'll actually hear a lot more about next week is that he had to communicate the plan to them. He had to help them see, had to help them take a good hard look at the reality which was that their town was their community was insecure, it was vulnerable to attack, it was vulnerable to other people coming in and it needed to be rebuilt for the future. Their future survival depended upon facing the reality of their circumstances. Now brothers and sisters, we have been in a time over this past year where a lot of the things that we had built up around us, these structures and things, have been broken down. They've been damaged. We have been living in a state of disrepair in a lot of ways. We've seen the ways in which Our community has fallen apart sometimes. Even the lack of being able to be in community has been so, so hard for us. Not to mention the devastation of a tornado and a global pandemic and racial tensions and political turmoil. You know, last week Pastor Dwight talked about the fact that we have to mourn the loss of things from the past. You know, we, don't, we, we tend to resist change, most of us resist change somewhat. But he, he argued that it's not really the change that we resist. It's that feeling of grief associated with change because we have to leave behind what was and embrace what is before us. You know, like Nehemiah's time spent in community, many of us have spent these last several months as we've thought about coming back to church and back to worship, we've thought about those emotional and um, physical needs that we have, the challenges that we have before us. We've missed that community since we haven't been able to gather together. And I believe that we've got to assess the damage. We've got to assess the damage. And because we know and we love each other, we can share openly about what's going on. (laughs) I want you to know that in-person worship attendance is down 50%. That's significant in a church our size. That means that 200 people outside of this community have not reconnected with us. Some may have online, but many have fallen away from church completely. Another thing that's important to note is that we have had five adult groups that have not met together in over nine months. For lots of reasons, some of them were not tech savvy. Some of them just didn't like Zoom. Can I get an amen with that? Um, Yes, I know. And so, so for whatever reason, there have been five adult groups that have not been able to meet, that have not had that discipleship to share with one another. At least one group has decided that they can't come back as they were and that they're going to merge with another group. They've had to assess what their needs were and make decisions about that. But I would say, as your pastor, the ministries that I have noticed that have taken a huge heavy hit have been ministries with children and youth. That's part of why we've launched this Say Yes to the Next Generation campaign You know, Chrissy and Brandon have worked so hard during all of this. Haven't you all loved their efforts to connect to our children and youth? Yes. They said yes to the challenge, and they began picking up and putting together packets of information for kids to do at home, events that they could do. They ended up, you know, safe and socially distancing activities around here. They have started doing lots of great things in ministry, and yet... They've assessed that they can't do it on their own. And unfortunately, like many things in the church, we're having to take a long, hard look at what we need in order to move forward and to build for the future. We see, if we take that look, that we aren't as healthy as we should be. We aren't. We as a church, in a lot of ways, have become consumers of God's word instead of doers of God's word and I get it it's been easy to sit back during COVID and just let the ministry come to you but now that we're emerging from this it's time to get to work it's time to get to work together the cold hard truth is that the staff cannot nor should they assume all the responsibility for ministry on their own that's not the way it was meant to be. In fact, Christ's holy church was never meant to be staff-driven. It was always meant to be disciple-driven. The Great Commission is there, and it says to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The pastors, will take care of baptism them if you just bring them to us, right? <laughs> if you just help introduce people to Jesus. I was thinking about this um, earlier, that... You know, for me, I grew up in church, and I remember my Sunday school teachers, and there was always somebody who invested in me. All of us are here because somebody thought it was important to tell us about Jesus. And I'm pretty sure it probably didn't come from the pulpit, (laughs) for what it's worth. I think it came in Sunday school classes and small groups and nursery school and youth programs. Now that we've assessed some of the damage, I don't want you to walk away feeling depressed because there is good news. I'm one who really likes to tune in to statistics and information. And a resource that we have that's provided to us by the Holston Annual Conference is called Mission Insight. So the good news is that the harvest is ripe for picking, brothers and sisters. We actually can look geographically and get all kinds of statistics about our church and our community from this Mission Insight Report. And so, what we did was we did a search. We did an area search right there. Um, it may be hard to see, but there's only three other United Methodist churches that fall within the bounds of that perimeter. And you see that OUMC is right smack in the middle. In this perimeter, there are a little over 70,000 people who um, are are living around our church. 70,000, that's significant. Now, the next thing that's so cool is the household with children under 18. So of those 70,000 people, the blue line is the state of Tennessee and the red line is our community. So above and beyond... What's normal? We have an above-average number of families with children under the age of 18 living in our community. And what's even more interesting is if you look at those bars on there, the blue circle represents 80% of our households have a mom and a dad living together. A two-parent household. That is way above the normal, and that's something to celebrate, to support parents, and to step up and support those 20% that are single-parent homes. Another really interesting statistic is about the age demographics of our community, the age trends. I read somewhere that in the next five years, we are supposed to have an increase of about 1,000 people in our current community. This is not accounting for all the new builds that are out there, but just the current households Without new builds, that means that those households are increasing 1,000, which can be only accounted for by birth or adoption. So 1,000 kids are going to be coming into our community through birth or adoption in the next five years. That's huge for us as a community. If you look at this chart, you see that the green highlighted areas, this is from birth all the way to seniors, The two green areas are the ones that we are above average. We're trending towards those things. And so you see that we're going to see a tremendous growth in from birth to five years. And then you see at the bottom there, the next largest group that we're going to be seeing growth in is going to be those over the age of 65. If We bring 1,000 new children into the world. We need grandparents to help us take care of those babies, right? So all those grandparents are moving to town to help take care of the babies, And I don't know what God is calling you to do in this moment. But I do believe that God is calling all of us to say yes. To say yes for building for the future. We've assessed what the needs are and we know what those needs are right now. And so I want to ask us to say yes. Now I know that God may not be calling you to say yes to something in particular. But I want to specifically, I was praying about this on the way in this morning... And God gave me a word, and, and I believe that five of you all, that God is asking you to say yes to this specific youth and children's ministry. Um, I find it really interesting that Brandon is the king of cold calls. He's made 30 cold calls to you. Some of y'all know you've got his number, you're, you know, you're, you're screening your calls. He's made 30 cold calls since he got here in August, and three of you have said yes to him. And he's still calling, bless his heart, because he has a desire. He knows that what we're doing with youth is important. I asked Chrissy about this response so far, and she said, Well, I've gotten five yeses, five yes cards, and everybody wants to be greeters. And that's great. we got to welcome kids to our children's department, but we also got to introduce them to Jesus. And so we need some people who love Jesus and love kids to help teach them. And we'll teach you everything you need to know. They are working so, so hard and saying yes to our church and our children and our youth, and so should we. And so... For those five of you out there that God is stirring in your heart right now, I want you to know that God gave me, I don't know your name, God didn't give me that, but you're out there, I know you're out there, and I actually got five cards off the thing. We have lots of opportunities, elementary, middle school, high school, job for everybody to just say yes. Is God calling you to say yes to the next generation? Is God calling you to step up and to step out in faith to build for the future? I hope that God is calling you to say yes. And for those of you who are not called to that, if God's not stirring in your heart, I want you to be in prayer like Dwight said last week. we got to pray and fast and be ready to move when God asks us to move. And so be ready for God to show you a place where you need to be connected, where you need to serve and to step up. So that we can build for the future. I loved last week's video when um, Chrissy and Brandon talked to all of these fathers of the faith. Who honestly didn't have it all together. And yet God used them anyway, right? And I love that ending where it said God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. And brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called. To say yes to something. Like Nehemiah, we are building for the future. And my question for you is, are you ready to get to work? Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you knowing that you see the damage that has been done. You see the the ways that we've fallen short. You see the things that need to be done. And Lord, you have equipped us to say yes and you will equip us to do what you have called us to do and so god i just pray i want to pray specifically for those five people that are here that are feeling that stirring in their heart to say yes to whatever it is that god is calling them to i pray lord that you would help them to be confident in their giftings and in their willingness to love children and youth, and to teach them about you. And Lord, for the rest of us, those of us who aren't being prompted in that way, we know that you're calling us to something. God, that you're calling us to be a part of building for the future. Help us to say yes. Whatever comes our way, help us to boldly say yes to what you've called us to.